0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast. We'll today from Rick Mercer, NPR, Dan Savage, The Young Turks, The Onion Radio News, a story by Mark Sam Rosenthal on the Story Collider podcast, and The Rachel Maddow Show.
1: Every year in this country, 300 kids take their own lives. It is a mind-boggling number. And this past week, one of those kids was Jamie Hubley. He was 15, he was depressed, and he happened to be gay. And because this is 2011, we just don't read about a kid like Jamie. We can Google him. And then the next thing you know, you're sitting at home watching his videos on YouTube. And he was gay all right. He was a great big goofy gay kid singing Lady Gaga on the internet. And as an adult, you look at that and you go, you know what? That kid's going places. For some reason, some kids, they looked at that and they attacked and now he's gone. And because this story is all too familiar, we know exactly what's going to happen next. Grief counselors will go into the school as they should. But what about the old-fashioned assembly? You know, where the cops show up, and there's hell to pay, and they find out who's responsible. You know, like when the lunchroom is vandalized. Because the kids who bullied this boy, they know who they are. And more importantly, other kids know who they are. It's no longer good enough for us to tell kids who are different that it's going to get better. We have to make it better now. That's every single one of us. Every teacher, every student, every adult has to step up to the plate. And that's gay adults too. Because I know, gay cops, soldiers, athletes, cabinet ministers, a lot of us do. But the problem is, adults, we don't need role models. Kids do. So if you're gay and you're in public life, I'm sorry, you don't have to run around with a pride flag and bore the hell out of everyone, but you can't be invisible, not anymore. 300 kids is 300 too many.
2: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Audie Cornish. In a number of big cities around the country, a startling statistic has emerged. Various research shows that close to a third of homeless youth identify as gay, bisexual, or transgender. It's largely because gay youth are more often kicked out of their homes than straight youth. And even if they are not kicked out, they may be, they may feel so uncomfortable that they leave. NPR's Margot Adler has the story from New York City, where nearly 4,000 young people are homeless every night. Many of them are gay. We're walking around the Christopher Street Pier in Greenwich Village where dozens of gay and transgender youth hang out. I'm with Carter Sebron and Elena Wood of the Safe Horizon Streetwork Project. They're one of several nightly teams that go out to find homeless youth, giving out snacks and information.
3: Would you like a snack? I
2: mean, I a Yeah, you like one? It? Like... Okay.
3: I have Oreos. Here you go. Thank
2: you. Is there any Doritos? Yes. They tell the youth about Streetwork's drop-in centers, where they can have showers, get clothing, housing referrals, and more. They also give out condoms.
4: Oh, Magnum. Oh, 25 yeah. big people. Yeah. A little person should never put that Magnum yeah. on there. I don't need that. Can I get another one?
2: When I ask Sebron, the outreach coordinator for the Street Work Project, whether that statistic that 30 to 40 percent of homeless kids are lesbian, gay, bi, or transgender, also called LGBT, makes sense, he says absolutely.
5: Yeah, I would say um, for the most part, the majority of the the youth we see who identify as being homeless also identify as being LGBT.
2: His partner, Elena Wood, says it's not that all of them are thrown out of their home, although many are.
6: So the parent might not
3: say you need to get out now, like I'm kicking you out, especially because that's illegal if they're under 18, you know. But, um, I mean, it's a very fine line between
2: what's their choice and what's not. Each homeless person has a different story. Jeremiah Beaverly grew up in Wisconsin and Illinois.
7: The day after my 18th birthday this year, uh, my adoptive parent kicked me out. At the time I was really infatuated with this guy and um, she was listening to my phone calls. She started telling her family stuff about me, like, oh, he's this,
2: he's that, he's gay, and you know, just like talking about me like I'm not a part of the family. Beaverly was lucky. He had friends whose parents were more open. He stayed with them until he finished high school. Now in New York City, he's living in emergency housing, only available for 90 days.
7: I went from shelters and couch surfing to my own bed. Like I haven't slept in my own bed almost a year, so it's, it's really
2: nice. There are only three organizations that cater to homeless gay kids in New York City. Carl Siciliano is the founder and executive director of one of them, the Ali Forney Center, which he describes as the nation's largest organization dedicated to homeless LGBT youth. He started the center almost 10 years ago.
5: When I started the Ali Forney Center, kids were dying in the street. There was no shelter for gay youth. Every couple of months, I, I, I would know somebody who was murdered in the streets.
2: His goal was just keeping kids safe. But as the years have gone on, he says...
5: It's just become so clear to me that we're living in the societal moment where kids are coming out at younger and younger ages, and there are just so many parents that aren't able to be parents to their gay kids. They can't cope, they don't know how to deal with it. Uh, Their religion is in conflict with the reality of their kids' lives. and, And these kids are being thrown away.
2: It makes sense if you think about it. When kids grow up today, they see gays on television. They read about gay marriage in several states. If they think they are gay, they think they can come out of the closet at younger ages. Tiffany Coco grew up in East Harlem. She dropped out of school, did some drugs, was kicked out by her parents. She is now 23 and on a waiting list for housing. She's been homeless since she was in her teens.
6: Staying at friends' houses, couch surfing. I lived on the streets, literally, like I, the A-Train was my best ride. Waking up to the sunrise, gorgeous. Slept on stoops, park benches, and then finally, shelters.
2: Siciliano says the gay rights movement has not been good about dealing with the issue of homeless gay youth.
5: The movement was articulated and thought out at a time when it was almost all adults coming out. We've really framed our, our fight for, for equality in adult terms. And, and almost all of the victories that we have won only really benefit the adults in our community.
2: He says the gay community hasn't really dealt with poverty and destitution. There are kids! There are We're at a rally for gay homeless youth. There are
4: kids!
2: There are kids! There's a crowd of a couple of hundred in Union Square. Kids. It's a different kind of struggle to protect our kids, kids. than the ones we've fought before, Siciliano tells the crowd. With adults it's a fight for laws like marriage equality.
5: It's not so much laws with the kids. It's it's economics. It's a fight for resources. That's what our community hasn't quite gotten yet. We have to fight for resources to protect our kids. That's right. And how dare we say it gets better to the kids if we're not willing to fight to make sure they have what they need?
2: There are only 250 beds for 3800 homeless kids in New York City. Waiting lists are huge. Facing a $10 billion deficit, Governor Andrew Cuomo made compromises with the New York state legislature. Budget cuts would have taken a hundred of those beds away. New York City's City Council restored monies cut from both the city and state budget, so no beds have been cut. A spokesperson said Governor Cuomo asked all local governments to take more responsibility for their budgets by eliminating waste and prioritizing vital programs. But Siciliano is still angry that homeless kids are not a priority. Of the governor, he says, it tears my heart in two.
5: Here you have, you know, a political leader who's doing so much to help the adults of our community and is taking actions that really harm and imperil the most vulnerable youth of our community. So what do we do? What is our
2: response to that? He hopes that the rally in late October is the beginning of a real campaign for youth shelter, they're calling for a 100 more beds for homeless youth each year until the need is met. But homeless kids don't have power, money, or votes. It's hard to believe that they will be at the top of many politicians' lists in future city and state budgets. Margot Adler, NPR News, New York.
8: I appreciate all of you sending me the links to headlines like Santorum Surges from Behind, which ran in a Philadelphia newspaper, and uh, Santorum Comes from Behind, which ran on a Catholic uh, newspaper's website. And and I have appreciated them, of course. I've appreciated them, uh, along with everyone else. The only sort of silver or tawny or beige lining in the Santorum victory last week, of course, is The unintended and often intended humor, I think when the New York Times described Santorum as being in the mix in a headline on the cover of the New York Times this week, they were winking at us. And I think when the uh, reporter at CNBC in a uh, report about Santorum's house, about all the GOP presidential candidates, their their homes, described a frothy controversy about where Santorum actually lived during the 2006 election that he lost by 18 points to Bob Casey – That she was winking at us, Uh, but it is the silver lining. We've all gotten to enjoy the laughs uh, and the uh, intentional or unintentional references to the new definition. We're not so new. It's been like eight years now. This this isn't a new definition. It is just a definition. Of Santorum, of course, the frothy mix of lube and fecal matter that is sometimes the byproduct of anal sex. I put an emphasis on the word "sometimes" because that's a word that people tend to overlook. If you're doing anal sex right, there is no lowercase Santorum. If you're doing it right, there's no uppercase Santorum. There's no Santorum at all. No Santorum involved. No Santorums invited. And speaking of Santorums plural, I know this is going to be perceived a little unfair, but I'm going to. Chat with, discuss, go after one of Santorum's children, Elizabeth Santorum. I think this is fair game because Elizabeth Santorum is uh, giving speeches on behalf of her father. She is a campaign strategist for him, works for him, and has been out there in Iowa, obviously successfully out there in Iowa, uh, beating the bushes for her father all this year. Uh, she was interviewed in the by the Huffington Post, profiled by the Huffington Post last week. Not so much interviewed, profiled by Elise Foley, writing for the Huffington Post. Story headlined Rick Santorum saves cash, gains a surrogate by turning to daughter. It's all about how she's out there on the campaign trail, working for her father, giving speeches for him, whipping up crowds. And uh, Elise Foley writes It is tough, after all, being a young surrogate for a candidate father clinging to an older worldview. Her Her father's stance on same-sex marriage and gay rights in particular has caused some friction from non-supporters. It's a policy thing, Elizabeth Santorum says. He thinks it's the right thing for America and the foundations of our country, she said, of gay marriage. Opposed to same-sex marriage herself, Elizabeth said she has gay friends who support her father's candidacy because of his economic and family platforms. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, it's really tough out there for the homophobes, isn't it? It's really tough. You know what else is tough? Losing your home after the death of your same-sex spouse because your marriage isn't recognized by the federal government. Seeing your husband deported because your marriage isn't recognized by the federal government. Being barred from your partner of 13 years' bedside while she dies in a hospital in Miami, you and your children barred from your partner's bedside. As she lays dying of a brain aneurysm, Because the hospital doesn't recognize gay marriage, which happened to Janice Langben as her partner Lisa Pond lay dying in a hospital in Miami in 2007. That's fucking tough too. And that's what happens in a country where marriage equality is not recognized. That kind of tough shit. It's tougher for gay people who do not have access to the rights, protections, responsibilities and privileges of marriage than it is for poor, dear, sweet Elizabeth Santorum, who just has to listen to people tell her that her father's bigotry is, in fact, bigotry. But what really interests me about the HuffPo interview is Elizabeth's claim that she has gay friends. Elizabeth Santorum, you can follow her at Twitter, at esantorum2012. She has gay friends, just like her father and Rick Warren and Joel Osteen and Donnie Osmond and Sarah Palin. It seems that all the high profile homophobes in America have gay friends these days or they claim to no one has ever met and no reporter has ever asked to verify the existence of one of Rick Santorum or Elizabeth Santorum's gay friends. Now, political reporters, I'm talking to you. I know some of you listen. Stop accepting homophobes claims of gay friendship at face value Elizabeth Santorum says she has gay friends who support her dad based on his family platform. That is an astonishing assertion. Who are these gay people who support Rick Santorum for president, despite his having compared sex between consenting adults of the same gender to child rape and dog fucking? Who are these gay people who support Rick Santorum, despite his having asserted that gay relationships are a threat to homeland security? These gay people who support Rick Santorum for president despite his opposition, not just to gay marriage, but to any legal recognition of same-sex relationships at all. Who are these gay people who support Rick Santorum for president despite his promise to write anti-gay bigotry into the U.S. Constitution? His promise last week to forcibly divorce every legally married same-sex couple in the United States and also to reinstate don't ask, don't tell. Who are these gay people where are these faggots i want to meet them i want to know their names political reporters when someone like elizabeth santorum or rick warren or rick santorum says i have gay friends and they support my dad because they agree with him about family issues that would be her dad's opposition to gay people having families of their own your immediate response should be a request for the names and phone numbers of some of these gay friends and supporters of Rick Santorum's. That's a claim that requires some checking out before you put it into print. You can reassure Elizabeth if you want that you'll quote her friends anonymously and on background to protect them from potty mouthed gay bloggers and podcasters. But you should tell her that you're going to need to verify the existence of these gay friends of her father's and hers because you're a journalist and not a stenographer. And if you do that, you're either going to catch Rick Santorum in a very revealing lie. What does it tell us about this moment in the struggle for LGBT equality that even homophobes like Elizabeth and her dad perceive a political risk in being perceived as homophobic? So you're either going to catch them in a revealing lie Or you're going to land a fascinating fucking interview with a gay supporter of Rick fucking Santorum. Either way, journalist, you win. And finally, returning to uh, the HuffPo interview with Elizabeth Santorum, she is aware of her father's so-called Google problem, part of a campaign by columnist Dan Savage to redefine the candidate's last name after he compared same-sex relationships to dog fucking and child rape. Savage and his perverted sense of humor is the reason why my children cannot Google their father's name, Rick Santorum wrote in a letter to his supporters earlier this year, then quoting Elizabeth. That just makes me sad. It's disappointing that people can be so mean, she said. I'm sorry I gave Elizabeth Santorum a sad. You know what gives me a sad? Thinking about Janice being barred from her lover, her partner, her wife, as her wife lay dying in another room in that hospital because of people who agree with Elizabeth Santorum and Rick Santorum about marriage, that fucking makes me sad. And Lisa Pond wasn't a policy thing as Elizabeth Santorum would describe her. She was a human being who died alone in a hospital bed with her children and partner barred from her room by bigots who agree with Elizabeth and Rick Santorum. That makes me sad. And you know what, Elizabeth? Making a dirty joke at the expense of a politically powerful figure like your father is a whole lot less mean than barring a woman from her lover, her wife's, bedside as she lay dying in a hospital. Anyway, Elizabeth, maybe I'm being a little hard on you. Maybe, like a lot of young people, you're still just 20. You're young. You're out there campaigning for your dad, America's highest profile frothing anti-gay bigot. Maybe you don't agree with him, but right now politically you're deferring to your dad's position on this and telling him and his supporters what you think they want to hear. You're not going to pull a Megan McCain and come out for marriage equality. Not yet. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to cut you some slack. I'm going to assume that like most young people you're actually for equality. Uh, but right now you can't risk publicly coming out for equality. Much like President of the United States, who I believe is for marriage equality and yet not publicly for it at this time. So I'm going to cut you a little slack. Maybe I'll meet you out on the campaign trail, because if your father continues to surge, if Santorum continues to wash over this great country of ours, a great tsunami of Santorum, a rising tide of Santorum, I will have to head out on the campaign trail and cover it, and maybe you and I will meet in person, and we can discuss in private what is mean, what isn't mean, what is rude, what is not rude. Oh, well.
0: dollars A month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So, for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com.
6: Rick Santorum made a stupid comment about. Uh how children are probably raised better by a man in prison as opposed to a gay couple, right?
9: Right. Better to have a father, even if he's in prison, than to have two lesbian moms uh, raising a kid. Because obviously, uh, gay people are no good at parenting. Why is that obvious? No one knows. Rick Santorum claims it has something to do with the Bible.
6: Yeah, Rick Santorum is an idiot. Uh study after study has actually proven that in some cases gay parents can e- be even better than heterosexual parents.
9: Now, when I saw the headline on this story, I thought, "Oh, come on. Okay, now we're getting this uh, lib agenda a little too far, right?" Now, why are gay parents better than straight parents? Well, then you read the evidence and it's actually a little compelling.
6: If you are a gay couple, you have to want to have a child to have a child. You have to go out of your way to adopt or find a surrogate, a sperm donor, in order to have a child. That means you really want it, you're prepared for it both mentally, physically, and you just know it's what you want. Did you know that 50% of all pregnancies um, or all children born in this country, in the United States, are unexpected? That's Not planned, a... unplanned.
9: Yeah, that's an amazing number. So, supplies, here's your kid. And of course, uh, a lot of people aren't ready for it, whether they're n- not married or even if they are married, and maybe they're not in an emotional situation where they feel that they desire the kid at that time. That makes an enormous difference. So, obviously, it has nothing to do with being genetic or gay people being better than straight people and parenting. Of course, that's all ridiculous. No one believes that. But since it's a self selected group mm-hmm. of people who really, really want to be parents, then they pay more attention to their kids, which is usually the number one sign for being a better parent. So it actually does make sense that gay parents, on average, would do a little better than straight parents. And I'm totally not biased here because I'm a straight parent.
2: Mm-hmm.
9: <laughs> so it's not like I'm like, oh no, gays are definitely better. No, but that that lo- that logic and the facts behind it are, uh, well, logical.
6: Absolutely. Psychologist Abby Goldberg says gay parents tend to be more motivated, more committed than heterosexual parents on average because they choose to be parents. Gays and lesbians rarely become parents by accident compared with the almost 50 percent accidental rate among heterosexuals. That translates to greater commitment on average and more involvement. So the experts are saying this. This isn't just some random theory that we came up with. Many children who are in foster care or many children who need an adoptive family uh, are adopted to gay couples, right? So it's very helpful in that way. So, according to a 2007 report, 65,000 kids were living with adoptive gay parents between 2000 and uh, 2002. 14,000 foster homes headed by gays and lesbians.
9: Now, we gave you the numbers behind it. Anecdotally, just uh, a lot of the um, Inner-city kids uh, will not get adopted because, for whatever reason, they're too old or they. White couples want. This, of course, the country's majority white. White couples want white kids. All this is understandable. It's not necessarily nefarious, right? But since gay couples have harder time adopting, and you got like a three-year-old black kid, for example, or a Latino kid or whatever, they're like, yeah, I'm fantastic. All we want is a kid. So there's a lot of upsides to gay couples adopting.
4: Everybody wants- Tell their neighbors how to live, but nobody wants to listen to how they feel.
9: And so it goes
4: on, 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 on. For a thousand years, a thousand years I say. What I got to say right now is love enough, yeah, love enough, yeah, love enough. Oh, can you love some more? Is
10: love enough, yeah, love enough, yeah, love enough. Oh,
7: can you love some more? Is
10: love it's The Onion yeah. Radio News. The letter D pulls its sponsorship from Sesame Street. This is Doyle Redland reporting. A spokeswoman for the letter D announced today that the well-known consonant is withdrawing sponsorship from Sesame Street, following the addition of a homosexual puppet to the show's cast. So far, no other sponsors have pulled out, though the number 7 has requested to pre-screen all new segments of the show. Original cast member Cookie Monster was saddened. Be disappointed that D
4: choose to end relationship with Sesame Street Due to pressure from vocal minority.
10: While a permanent replacement for D has not yet been found, Sesame Street officials say the number three, an African-American numeral, will fill in for it during the show's animated shorts.
5: Doyle Redland for the
0: following story comes to us with thanks to Mark Sam Rosenthal, who you will hear speaking, and to the Story Collider podcast, who originally produced the performance. Both are linked in the show notes.
11: How to get to
7: I went to private school, so the only uh, sex ed class I ever was in uh, was only one time, and uh, two other... Two of the other students in the class were Michelle Pfeiffer and Adrian Zamed. It um, was a musical number from Grease 2 called Reproduction. It, who knows the song? And this, Yes, a few people, yes. It's pretty awesome. I actually thought Grease 2 for many years was better than Grease. It's got some awesome numbers in it. Um, this being chief among them, um, you know, remember how it starts off? I don't sing well, so I'll just, I'll just do it. Um, it's like, it's a science teacher in the class and he's like, the parts parts of the flower flower are so constructed constructed that very, very very often the wind may cause cause pollination. pollination. (laughs) If not, then then a bee or any other nectar gathering gathering creature can create the same same situation. situation. And it, it, it it only gets better from there um, but it's like it's a, it's a science class at Rydell High they're still at Rydell High if you never saw Grease 2 um, uh, anyway and uh, so it's the science teacher teaching them about the photoperiodic reaction in plants and uh, but basically the body boys and busty broads of uh, Rydell High Take all this stuff to the to a new level, and uh, they start getting really lewd and suggestive about botanical parts. And there's all kind of crazy lyrics like uh, "Put your pollen tube to work," uh, which they rhymed. With, they went one better and rhymed it with "Make my steam and go berserk," which, which I thought was really awesome. I mean, like everyone in this room needs to be YouTubing this, like. As soon as I'm done, if you don't know this song. Um, it's pretty awesome. Uh, and uh, especially when you're like in the fifth grade, I must have been. And, uh, and uh, I, was, I remember one, uh, one slumber party in particular, uh, watching this song, uh, watching this scene over and over again uh, with some friends of mine at my house, and we would like, Rewind the tape and play it back. The volume was like really low, and we're like looking over our shoulders, like, you know, I don't want my mom and dad to walk in and see that we're like learning about the birds and the bees. And, uh, you know, it's like, it's like, it's titillating and scandalizing. And then, uh, at one point, uh, the girls in the classroom like put their, uh, hands over their heads to simulate vaginas, which the boys like penetrate in this like highly choreographed orgy. I mean, it, It was, it it made me feel tingly and uncomfortable. And then there's, I felt like the guy in the song who like runs out of the classroom, he's like, oh, oh, I think I'm gonna throw up. (laughs) Anyway, that slumber party night was also the night that I killed the biggest flying cockroach I have ever seen in my life, even by Louisiana standards. I mean, it was, it was as big as a mucus plug. And, um... (laughs) And just as bulbous and swollen and uh, globular and gooey, uh, it was. It was trailing some giant, bloated, distorted egg sac. Like it looked like it had been exposed to radiation, um, which had obviously survived. It's a cockroach. Um, but I mean, it really, it, it, it just was like some flying dystopian example of reproduction gone very, very wrong. And I brought it down with a rolled up people magazine, which I had recently been given a gift subscription to. Um, I, I did, of course, know about the birds and the bees uh, for real by this time. Uh, When I was a couple years earlier in grade school, I was probably seven or eight, my dad had driven me over to his friend, Greg Jarman's house, um, and we picked up a book. Uh, It was not a big book, sort of about the size of a Dr. Seuss book, but it was a fancy book. It had a purple and gold cloth cover and no title. And of course, this was Baton Rouge, so I assumed that the purple and gold book had something to do with the LSU Tigers, (laughs) who are currently number one. Soon to be national champs again, January 9th. I'm sorry if anyone is from Alabama. I'm always sorry if anyone is from Alabama. Um, thank you. But we got back to our house, and it became clear that the Purple and Gold book had nothing to do with the LSU Tigers. My dad took me into his study, shut the door, and we started looking at the Purple and Gold book together. And now it was filled with... Uh, Uh, watercolour illustrations of uh, naked man and woman entwined in various positions. Uh, I'm sure that these watercolours were probably pretty crude, but in my mind over the years, they have become conflated with some sort of Art Nouveau masterpiece, (laughs) as if I learned the facts of life from something illustrated by Gustav Klimt. (laughs) instead of uh, from a book borrowed from Greg (laughs) Jarman. So my dad's talking to me, he's like, you know, when a man and a woman love each other, uh, um, the the man does this and the woman does that. The man does this and the woman does that. And then the man puts his penis in the woman's vagina. Wait, what? (laughs) My dad smiled. And then the man puts his penis in the woman's vagina. Wait, what? (laughs) That's disgusting, I told my dad. I am never doing that. (laughs) And he smiled and he's like, oh, sure you will. As if the desire to put one's penis on a woman's vagina were the most natural desire in the world. (laughs) But it just didn't seem that way to me. Uh, I wanted to be like my dad, and I am like my dad in a lot of ways. I'm very good looking. Um, I uh, I love to pore over maps. I have an excellent sense of direction. I, uh, I am the man who doesn't ask for directions because I don't need to. <laughs> I believe, like my father, that vacations are a wonderful opportunity to visit historical sites and uh, treasure the rich heritage of this great nation. Not simply loll on a resort beach. But as for reproduction, well, let's just say, by senior year of high school, I was the guy sucking off other dudes on the levee downtown. <laughs> I, uh, I came out to my father, uh, after freshman year of college. <laughs> and he was very accepting. Um, in fact, the only thing he said that indicated, you know, any, any disappointment, um, and it wasn't judgment. It was just, he said, I'm only sorry that you will never have a son of your own. Because, uh, I truly treasured that experience. And he did. I mean, that was really, he, he was, he was, a guy who defined himself by being a dad not not by his job. Um I mean he was he wasn't just at like one performance of every school play I was in, he was at every performance of every school play I was in. And the dress rehearsal <laughs> um where he took photographs of all the scenes on stage and made copies for all the cast members, you know, he was that guy. Um and he would always say to me, "You know what? You are my heart." And uh Then my junior year of college, a couple of years after that, dad started to get sick. And uh, we didn't know what was wrong with him at first. It was was a really big mystery. There were strange symptoms. uh, There was weakness. There was fatigue. They ran a battery of tests. um, Scientific tests. Uh, (laughs) Science. (laughs) How many times? Can we get a bell to ding every time I get the word? Um... but you know they all came back negative. We can't nothing, nothing, nothing. Uh, until they ran the last test, they could run the test for the thing that it really couldn't be because he was married, right? But that is what it was. He was HIV positive. Got infected by having sex with another man, and the doctors did not give him very long. This was uh, this was ninety five, so it was just on the wrong side of the cusp of all the drug cocktails that came later. And I would like to say that my first reaction to this news was compassion. But it wasn't. That actually came much, much later. I was angry. I was furious. Um, yeah, my dad was going to die. But it, more important to me at the time seemed to be the fact that everything up to that point had been some kind of crazy lie as if I had been set up. You know, like everything, my whole family, even me, it seemed to be based on being misled, you know? Even reproduction, that purple and gold book, like a man puts his penis in the woman's vagina, it's the most natural desire in the world. But no, (laughs) it wasn't. It wasn't for me, and apparently, it wasn't for my dad, either. I thought the whole thing was crazy. Here I was living openly, I was an open homo, and and it seemed like this family that my dad had made while living a double life was just a huge waste of time to me. It seemed like a huge waste of time for my mother, for my father, and for me. I, I, I felt like I had been a waste of time. So while he was dying, There was one day my mother was on the telephone with some insurance claims adjuster, crying because there was some problem getting a refill or something wasn't covered. I mean, you know, insurance is just about as low as it gets. I think I'd rather fall in love with a Republican than an insurance (laughs) claims adjuster. Although I imagine there's a great deal of overlap. Anyway, mother was crying, and I snapped, and I left her crying on the phone, and I ran back around to the other corner of the house where my dad was dying in his bed, and I wanted to hit him, and I meant to hit him, and I went at him to hit him in his bed, and we are not a hitting family, (laughs) but there was literally some kind of force field of fatherhood hovering over him, and I couldn't bring my hand to touch him, but... I could bring it onto the bedspread right next to him, and that's what I did. I just beat the bedspread right next to him over and over and over again, and I got really blind with rage, and I just screamed at him, and I said, just die already. Just fucking die. Go ahead and die. And he was shrieking back into the bed and trying to look away, but I I got him to look me in the eye, and I called him... The one thing that he had surely lived his whole life trying never to be called. You fucking, fucking faggot. I thought that would hurt him, but not me. And it did hurt him. My father, who treasured being a father above all else, gay bashed by his own gay son. And some dystopian example of reproduction gone very very wrong. I stormed out of the house and 20 minutes later I looked up at a stoplight and realized I had gotten in the car. And I didn't apologize to him until six months later and it was just hours before he died and he was already in a coma. So I have to hope it is true what the scientists and doctors say, that the hearing is the last thing to go. But there was one day, one day, uh, between the day I called my father a faggot and the day he died, when I was helping him walk around the neighborhood. He couldn't really walk very well at that point. He was almost blind. And uh, so we were walking around the neighborhood. And out of nowhere, he looked at me and he squinted and he just said, you know, do what you want with your life because I never did. And it really broke my heart because there are so many things that we all do that we don't want to do. And some people really take it to the extreme. I, I never wanted to do any of the stuff in that Purple and Gold book. And I never have. <laughs> I am a perfect Kinsey six. I don't know whether my dad wanted to do any of those things. He wanted to have what came from doing those things. He wanted to be a father, which he was. So it turns out that sex is the most natural desire in the world. But reproduction is actually way more complicated. certainly more complicated than pistols and stamens, and a song from Greece 2. Reproduction,
12: reproduction, put your pollen tube to work. Reproduction, reproduction, make my
4: stamen
2: go berserk. Reproduction, I don't think they even know what a pistol is. I got your pistol right here. Where does the
11: go? Back here.
2: Put your feet
11: in your seat. Sit down. Next chapter. Now, in an abstract way, the same thing applies to the reproductive organs of the more complex life forms. But we are now dealing with sexual response. <laughs> are there any questions before we begin reading? Is it possible the
12: female member of some sex on a couch could, like, get this guy all hot uh, and she never even knew it? Negative.
6: Right-wingers who are in the closet are now uh, using their uh, morality in something known as cuddle conversion camps.
9: Oh, I love this story. This is the best story love of the day. Love
6: it. It's the best story of the day. It's covered by Salon.com, and I think it does a perfect job of outlining how disastrous these camps are, and how much of, how much of these right wingers who want to convert gay people are just pervy wankers. Okay, <laughs> <let's> <laughs> of course, yeah. of course.
9: Can I say it clearly enough? Uh, look, oh, they want to do gay reparative therapy. But we've covered this story before. Now, look, there's a lot of nuances to it. But like seven years ago, Ben and I did this story where the guy would have them sit in his lap, and he'd be like, "Oh, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay." <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, good, good, good." Go. And I pounded a gavel back then. But you get a little of the details.
6: Okay. So uh, what these cuddle camps are is uh, people who are trying to convert gay people. Uh, Have them come to the camp, and then uh, the idea is to get as physical with these gay individuals as possible. Of course, because the reason why the reason why they're gay is because they have a mental illness from not getting enough affection from their fathers.
9: That's the theory.
6: So they come to these camps, right, Mm -hmm. and and then they get cuddled and they get caressed, and somehow that's going to make them straight. In reality, these, you know, these anti gay people are you know getting off on it uh, literally oh, okay. yeah.
9: look almost all these camps are run by people who cured themselves or had other people to cure them, hence are in fact really gay right, right. so shocking that they 've found an excuse. Doing cuddle therapy with other gay guys. Now wait till you get a load of the details on the
6: quotes. Ted Cox, who is a reporter for Alternet, one of my favorite publications, uh, actually did an investigative report into one of these cuddle camps, and I want to read you uh, a part of his. Actual report. He says, I sat on the floor between the outstretched legs of the camp guide, my head leaning back against his shoulder. The guide sat behind me, his arms wrapped around my chest. This hold was called the motorcycle. I bet it was. Five men (laughs) surrounded the two of us, their hands resting gently on my arms, legs, and chest.
9: Okay, it, there's another term for this. It's called a circle jerk. <laughs>
6: okay. I mean, how brazen
9: are these guys? First of all, the minute I heard, okay, then I had to sit between the legs of the guy who was supposed to cure me, I thought, <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. But the second part of the quote.
6: Okay, so what ends up happening is. Uh, of course, these guys that are cuddling him, giving him cuddle therapy, get massive boners.
9: <laughs> <laughs> no, we're not kidding. That's in the report. He says, I could feel his erection through his jeans rubbing up on me. I was like, oh,
6: Jesus, Lord,
9: mercy. Right. Okay, this is the guy who's curing him of being gay as he's holding on to him really tight in the motorcycle.
6: Now, Richard Cohen, who is one of the uh, despicable people who runs one of these camps, actually had a quote uh, that responds to the boners. Okay, so I want to tell you what the quote is.
9: <laughs> Good, we get a response to the boner.
6: It is natural for us to feel stimulation when we are intimate with either someone of the same or opposite sex. Do not become hooked on holding because this technique can be addictive.
9: I <laughs> bet again. If you're a gay guy, you're holding another dude. I'm sure that's addictive to you. If one of the guys that I know or don't know was holding on to me, that is not addictive. And it does not stimulate me. Imagine some sweaty dude comes and starts holding on. I'm like, ah, yeah. What part of that is stimulating? Unless, of course, you're gay, like all these guys pretending to do gay therapy. By the way, one of these guys was featured on CNN, and he's the one that had the guy sit on his lap and he'd rock back and forth. (laughs) Uh, No, I'm not kidding. We showed the video. It was amazing. And then at the end, he's, he he took out a tennis racket. and this is part of the therapy. He had a bunch of pillows, right? Uh-huh. He starts wheeling on the pillows. That's where this sound bite on our soundboard comes from. And then he starts saying, Mom, 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 why did you do that to me? Dude, they are off their rockers, man. Wow. Okay. These guys doing the therapy. Just calm down, man. You know who needs a hug? You do, okay? It's okay man, you're gay, there's nothing wrong with it, let it go.
11: For liberals and for a lot of Democrats, the 2008 election uh, was a little bit of a mixed bag. I mean, on the one hand, there was a huge amount of euphoria about a man named Senator Barack Obama winning the presidential election against John McCain. That was very exciting and a very big deal for liberals and Democrats and for a big swath of the country. Uh, less exciting, though, uh, that night was what happened in California. California passed Proposition 8, which took away an existing right. Before Proposition 8, same-sex couples had the right to get married in California, and thousands had done so. Prop 8 rescinded that right, which made for a bittersweet election night and uh, made for a little bit of confusion in the late-night coverage that night.
1: I believe we've got some pictures out of San Francisco, as well. Uh, Some of the celebration pouring out in the Castro District
9: of the city, as it's known, a place near and dear to uh, to me, and
11: certainly me, having written for the papers out there all these years. That may not all be celebration if it's in the Castro and we haven't got the proper yet. Prop 8 passed in California in 2008 that rescinded same sex marriage rights. But it was soon challenged in court by a very famous odd couple of very, very big deal American lawyers. The two most famous litigators in the country. David Boyce had been Al Gore's lawyer in Bush v. Gore. Ted Olson had been George W. Bush's lawyer in that same case. Ted Olson went on to become solicitor general in the Bush administration. A conservative icon and a liberal icon fighting on the same team. They won their first round in federal Court with the ruling that Proposition 8 was unconstitutional. That was appealed up to the Circuit Court, which is just one level below the U.S. Supreme Court. Today we got the ruling from that Circuit Court. They found on very narrowly construed grounds that Proposition 8 does violate the United States Constitution. It is unconstitutional. The The court found that Proposition 8 served no purpose and had no effect other than to lessen the status and human dignity of gays and lesbians in California. Joining us now for an exclusive interview is one of those two two very famous lawyers who got that big win today, former Solicitor General Ted Olson. Uh, Mr. Olson, congratulations and thanks for your time tonight. Nice to see you
10: it's my pleasure to be here thank you rachel
11: um, I, I am no expert on these matters especially compared to you but the ruling seems to me uh... narrowly construed to apply just to the situation in california to not try to assert a right to marriage equality more broadly I, is that the way that that you see it and did you expect it to come out that way
10: actually i think it's a very broad decision hmm. uh, and let me explain that in the first place the court said that california was somewhat unique in that, as you said a few moments ago, Proposition A took away the rights of same-sex persons to get married. But the right exists in many other states now, and people are attempting to take that right away in other states. Um, and therefore, this precedent stands for the proposition that once you grant those rights, people have the right to get married, which is a fundamental right in this country. You cannot take it away from those individuals without violating the Constitution. But the court went on to stress with respect to various others issue, other issues in the case that there was no justification, there was no rational basis to single out gay and lesbian individuals in this country and take away rights from them or to deny rights from them at Et- The court went through every argument that had been made on the other side and systematically dismantled every one of those arguments. So while the court focused on the peculiarities of California, the principles it articulated are quite broad and very compelling.
11: When you say that the court uh, asserted that you cannot take existing rights away, but also that you cannot deny rights uh, to couples on the basis of uh, sexual orientation, does that mean that you see this as potentially applying potentially uh, blazing a legal trail for states in which there are not same-sex marriage rights recognized right now.
10: Oh, absolutely. Because what the court relied upon was a major decision in by the United States Supreme Court called Romer versus Colorado, in which Colorado had restricted the rights of gay and lesbian individuals, and the Supreme Court of the United States struck that down as unconstitutional. But both in that Romer case and in this case today... The court went, said, the if you're going to select a class of our citizens, these are our citizens that are presumptively entitled to be treated like other citizens, and select them out on the basis of characteristics that are peculiar to them, you have to have a reason for doing so. And the reasons that are, were articulated by the proponents throughout this litigation were found completely lacking by the Ninth Circuit and the the court below it. And so those principles are going to be very important for states that have not yet recognized a right for individuals to get married to the person they love who happens to be someone of the same sex. The United States Supreme Court, forty-some years ago, struck down a similar prohibition that existed in sixteen states that prohibited people from different races from getting married. In a case called Loving versus Virginia, 16 state laws were wiped out. Laws that would have prevented the President of the United States, his parents from getting married in Virginia in 1967, they would have been guilty of a felony. This decision is very much like that decision.
11: You were clear from the beginning that you wanted a case uh, that could win at the Supreme Court. You wanted a, a landmark case, now as i 'm putting words in your mouth, you don 't speak that bluntly, but could this be that case? Do you see this as the the likely path forward in terms of what the Supreme Court decides to take up?
10: We very much thought that this was an important case that could go all the way to the Supreme Court. The plaintiffs in this case are individuals who have been in relationships for a long period of time, loving individuals. The lesbian couple have four boys that they 're raising in a wonderful household. The trial had 18, uh, eight expert witnesses testifying about history of discrimination uh, the nat- what it 's like to be gay what it 's like to be denied the right to marry. The district judge rendered a meticulous thorough decision, and the Ninth Circuit did so. This is the issue that should go to the United States Supreme Court someday where the People that we're representing and others like those people are not asking for anything special they're asking for the right to be treated with decency and respect and dignity and afforded the same rights that we afford to other citizens in this country they're not asking for much just equality and i do think this issue will go to the supreme court i think it will go to the supreme court in this case and there could not be a better record or a better foundation for this important principle to get to the supreme court
11: hearing you speak about in in those terms uh, makes me want to, I guess, uh, put a question to you that causes will we'll, we'll require a little extrapolation. Um, the Mormon Church was the main financial backer and the main provider of early volunteers to the Proposition 8 effort. Um, all the Republican candidates for president except for Ron Paul today put out statements deploring today's ruling, which of course went your way. As a conservative, as somebody who's been so important in conservative politics, why do you think it is that hostility to gay rights? Uh, is still something that is so utterly mainstream and expected of, of both mainstream politicians and mainstream institutions in conservative politics today.
10: Well, I think I don't know the answer to your question, Rachel, but I think it's terribly unfortunate. Marriage is a conservative value, not that conservatives own it or liberals own it, but the loving relationship between individuals that want to be respected by their society and treated as equals is a conservative value it involves liberty and privacy and association and identity marriage is a building block of our society young people get it older people are still getting it but all of the polls are changing people more and more are understanding that these are our American citizens. These are our brothers and our sisters. We have got to treat them right. And we've got to treat them decently. And we've got them to give them the same freedom and justice that we give to other people. More and more people in the, in America are understanding that. I'm pleased to say that more and more Republicans are understanding that. I'm sad to say, I'm, uh, it makes me sad to say, that Republicans haven't fully understood it. But I think the day will come, and every time that we have a chance, they David Boys and I have a chance to address this question. We believe we're converting more people <clears throat> and persuading more people that this is the right thing. It is not a conservative or a liberal issue or Republican or Democrats. When David Boyce and I came together on this, our mission was to persuade the American people that this is an issue of American justice, American freedom, American equality. This, These are the principles. All men are created equal in this country. We have got to get there.
4: Hey Jay, this is Casey from Michigan calling. I just got done listening to, not your most recent episode, but it's the one prior to that, with the article about us changing the context in which we look at equality and, 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 and the article by the guy who basically called a dick. You know, I gotta say, I get, I get some kind of like internal gut negative reaction by the premise of that, and I don't even get any kind of positive agreement with it, because the idea... That as a gay male, I am denied the ability to marry somebody whom I love in the traditional context of marriage is a right that is taken away from me right now. And I don't necessarily agree with the premise that society is moving away from traditional marriage to go to these other forms of you know, cohabitation, relationships, or whatever, because that they're not valued anymore, they're not part of our society anymore, that we should be looking at changing the structure in itself. There's a lot to be said about the way our country values people who stay in marriages for longer periods of time. And, And I'm reminded of a quote from Jurassic Park from all places. There's a quote in there where Ian Meltem goes, you know, your scientists are so preoccupied that they could, that they don't stop to ask if they should. And that's kind of what made me, like, I I felt, as you were talking about this, that we're so preoccupied with whether or not we could change something, because it seems to be the way things are going, that we don't necessarily always stop to ask if we should. And as progressives, I think that's very important, because I am very much a, a socialist, leftist, progressive person, and I'm all about finding the context of which how we can move ourselves along in our culture. But sometimes we do have to stop and ask if whether we think that's the right thing. And I think that the idea that all people should be able to marry and, and have the equality in their lives trumps changing the overall structure of it. Uh, I hope that made sense. Anyway, thanks for what you do, and we'll be listening to you soon. Bye. Hi, Jay. This is Elka in Indiana.
12: First of all, I just want to thank Adrian from College Station for her comments regarding the whole LGBTQ discussion. She absolutely spoke my mind she she could not have worded what I've you know been wanting to call and word any better. I totally agree with, with her observations about how you reacted to that and and why, for me and Adrian, and possibly others, your reaction was the was you know the reaction that kind of um, uh, you know rubbed me the wrong way, um, because once again it was one of those things where those in the dominant culture are sort of you know putting the onus back on those of us who are marginalized to explain things or to sort of be happy with uh, whatever crumbs you know are being tossed our way regarding um, you know civil and human rights issues. And I'm sure that's probably not what you intended, but that's kind of how it came off. And the second thing is, I'm very curious about your comments regarding the, the guy, I'm sorry, I forget his name, who is against marriage equality. Now, obviously, being against equality strikes me as a bizarre notion. But other than that, I actually quite agree with, with much of what he said. And it's interesting to me that you call him a dick. I'd be curious to know what exactly is it about him or his views that make you want to call him a dick. Um, Is it his militancy? I wonder if he were less militant if you would have that same sort of sentiment about him. Thanks, Jay. Keep up the good work.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So first of all, I want to let you know that the the music that you've just started hearing right now is uh, it, it, it's a song that was put together as a fundraiser. So it's called It Does Get Better, and uh, All Proceeds from uh, purchases of the song, go to stonewall.org.uk, which is a UK-based lesbian, gay, and bisexual charity. So check out stonewall.org.uk to see what they're all about. And then uh, just search for It Does Get Better uh, wherever you can buy music. And if you can find it there, purchase it and proceeds go to Stonewall. (laughs) Uh, Today, I have an exciting thing for you, something I think I've maybe never done before, where I, I, I brought a friend on to have a conversation. And and so this is uh, my friend Lauren, who has been referenced in shows recently, and and this this whole discussion of uh, dissecting the importance of communication through the lens of of discussions about the it gets better campaign and the LGBT community uh, just fascinate me to no end. And so you know we tried to have a short conversation, but it ended up going on for 35 minutes. Uh, so I'm going to play the uh, the best 10 minutes of that for you guys. Basically, this started when she mentioned that some in the LGBT community felt that the It Gets Better campaign didn't go far enough in its mission, and I misunderstood what what was being said, Uh, I reacted poorly, and then took that as sort of a teachable moment, to recognize the importance of really, really fine-tuning one's message, because you know one small misstep can lead to misunderstandings, regardless of how well-intentioned the recipient of the message may be. And so that's about as much as you need to know, and uh, the rest of the conversation will take it from here.
3: When you put that onus on those people to basically have to explain everything things that that should be self-evident i guess the learning point was the moment where you should have said where i said to you hey i don't feel this way because it's for a reason and then you should have said huh I wonder what that reason is. Let me detach emotionally and 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 rationally unpack what the reason well,
0: is. Well, sure, sure, but nothing is self-evident. That that's what I'm trying to say is, right. is is that we need to lower our expectations of what we think is self-evident because what's self-evident to you is completely okay. foreign to other people.
3: When we're when we're talking about an issue where in this regard, if one group who is the marginalized group says, "Whoa, whoa, whoa wait a second. I see this differently." I think at that moment self-evidence doesn't need to be understood in the terms of, I have to know everything about your culture. I, I, I need to know everything. It, that's not what we're, what we're trying to glean. What we're trying to get at is, in that moment, you should say, these people know more than me, and therefore I should remove that visceral reaction. And even though that's something that's you know, humanistic, you can't necessarily like separate. Right. But well, it, Of, but it, of yeah. course
0: I would want to do that. Of course I would. Because I'm an empathetic dude. But mm-hmm. you can't expect, you know, just because you think that people should do this doesn't mean they're going to. As soon as they think they understand something, even if they've completely misunderstood, they're going to fill in all the gaps that they think they're missing with whatever it is they think you're saying. And the, and they will almost stop listening. because like, Okay, no, I got it. I, I, see, I see what you mean, and, but even, though, even if they're completely wrong, so that's why you have to spoon-feed people a little tiny bit at a time to make sure they don't make any logical leaps that you don't want them to make.
3: Okay, but I, I mean, I buy that in the sense of I understand You know, human nature has tendencies to insert and fill in for gaps. However... I don't want to reduce humanity to their lowest common denominator. I want, as a, as a queer advocate, as a queer person, I want to know that if I'm talking to someone about queer issues, they are going to automatically defer to me and my judgment if I'm saying, hey, hey guys, this didn't sit well with me for these reasons. And stop right there and listen and pay attention to what I'm saying because it affected me. Um, sure, of course. right?
0: But, but, but you can't control how they perceive you. You can only control what you say. That That's what I'm saying. So, right, so but, it, so but it the, the
3: onus, yeah, absolutely. But the onus to be placed on us to not only have to move through society and try to get everything, uh, we have to work for everything, we have to fight really, really hard to get equal rights. I mean, what are we doing in 2012? That's what we have to still do. Um, we're the last bastion of, 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 you know, that civil liberties uh, platform in essence, and yet to have then someone say, wait a second, this wasn't good enough. Pfft, that's pathetic. That's awful. Um, are you not happy with the with the crumbs that you have you have achieved? sort? like that. That's what that's how it comes across. And sure. whether. Yeah. And whether that's exactly what was said or not. That elicited that reaction in me. Okay. And therefore, I was on the defensive, and I was like, hey, hey, wait a second.
0: Sure. You know? Okay, so when I worked at the climate change nonprofit, we, we worked in Maryland, D.C., and Virginia. And when you go into southwest Virginia in the Appalachian Mountains, you, you encounter people who, uh, you know, have, for generations, they have worked in the coal mines, and so, if you, as a skinny white dude from from the D.C. suburbs, goes out into you know, Southwest Virginia, and you're like, "Hey guys, I'm here. I'm here to let you know that uh, coal is killing people. It, it's killing you. It's killing your family. It's keeping you poor, and it's destroying the planet to boot. So we're we're just going to insist that you stop. You're you're not. You know. You can't. You can't. You can't speak to them." If you don't understand where they're coming from, you don't realize that when you say, "Hey, um, th- this job you have, it's-, it's actually killing you and and your family." What you're saying is your entire cultural heritage is evil, and that's how they hear it. And so, so when you go in, you can't you can't speak in those terms because you're going to be fundamentally misunderstood and hated for that. So you know, so that it, I mean, it's a really extreme example, but in that case. When you go in, the onus is on you as a climate activist to be like, you know what, I really need to know how to communicate to people, otherwise my message is going to be lost. And as much as you can say like, hey, come on, poor white family who doesn't know how much you're being oppressed by a coal company, we're the ones who care about saving people. You should stop what you're doing, stop your question, and listen to what we have to say. There are all sorts of parallels that, that break down drastically between these comparisons, but... You start to get the idea I so
3: well I think I think when it when it comes to queer rights and LGBT rights, we have done the whole like okay, we're walking on eggshells, you know uh, we don't want to you know upset the Santorums of the world we've done that for years and years and years and years, and we've been marginalized, we haven't had the same rights until you get to generations where we're like we've had enough, we are done we don't want to just have a seat at the table we want to change the table and so to be denied that capacity, um, and and that's not exactly. I know, I know that's not what you were getting at. That you weren't you weren't on board with right. making LGBT rights more tolerant and accepting, and and those types of things. I know that that wasn't the argument. But in that moment, I had good reason to have the reaction I did with the It Gets Better campaign. And for my my colleagues and, and and my peers in the community to to sort of say you know this didn't sit right one hundred percent of, of the time of right of course
0: you had the I mean yeah and and that's what we've all come to agree and we all right. sort of learned that lesson together it's like oh look at this it turns out there is a better way to do it and we do need to like force things to get better rather than just passively wait yeah we're right. we're with you
3: right but I didn't I I don't I don't necessarily believe that I I have to cherry pick the conversation so that. You'll understand it in a way that the Appalachian poor family <laughs> that, that you so lovely, eloquently described will understand how coal is ruining the universe. I think it is a general consensus that human rights are human rights, and whether you have you know a poor family in the middle of the Midwest or you have some liberal activist on 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 the coast, I think people understand right and wrong, and at the end of the day, fighting for civil rights is something that, you know, if you're not on that side, as Hillary Clinton said, you'll be on the wrong side of history. Um, And so in that tone, you're you're dealing with a, a community that some people just want to be heard and to be validated. And it comes down to validation, Jay. So yeah, that's pretty much my point.
0: Yeah. Plenty of people did not misunderstand you the same way I did. You know, like lots of people either wrote or left voicemails saying, you know, oh, I, I heard what you, you know, your description of Lawrence Point, and I thought, hmm, yeah, that sounds about right. And so maybe I'm completely off base, and maybe I'm the only one who took it the wrong way. I just, I, that just seems unlikely. And so the whole point was everything you're saying and meaning is completely right. And so the only way you can improve on the point you're trying to get across is to make sure that that people like me, incredibly strong allies, won't be confused. And and so it was you know it's it's just a it's it's one data point to to work from, but I thought it could potentially be extrapolated as like no matter how right you are, if you're being misunderstood, then you're wasting energy. And so 3 seconds of a little bit of extra clarification Uh, you know, about your point, and, you know, in this case, it was the It Gets Better, whether it's to say, members in the community feel that the It Gets Better campaign was a stepping stone, but didn't go far enough, and now we're excited about taking the next step, versus people in the community feel like the It Gets Better campaign didn't go far enough, and we need to do something else. I mean, it's it's the exact same thing, but phrased in just slightly a different way. That, that taps into the emotional drive of people. I mean, like, we could get into a whole conversation about how propaganda works and how to tweak people psychologically and, like, what turns people on and what turns them off and what's going to get them fired up and what's going to get them irritated. You know, it's, it's the... I mean, we're, we're fine tuning the message. That's, that's kind of what I'm trying to learn from this is how do we, whether it be the LGBT community or any community of any kind, like the climate activists going to the Appalachian mountains, you have to fine tune your message so that you can drive it home as far as possible.
3: I uh, see what I would do is just go to the Appalachian mountains and have a pride parade right there.
0: That, I think that would go over well.
3: Yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah, at the end of the day, it's all about, we all are are different, but the same. I think, I think that's, That's a heartfelt message to end with. Should should we sing Kumbaya or no? We can can do that later. I I don't think the listeners would appreciate my singing voice. Fair enough. Okay. Well, thanks.
0: (laughs) Cheers. So there we go. That was Lauren. And as I said, it was an excellent conversation. I wish you could have heard the whole thing. I always love talking to her. And you know, just so you know, she's sort of the assistant to the regional manager around these parts. And so plenty of recent and future success of the show is going to be attributed to her. And, uh, and, and I hope you like hearing her because I'm kicking around ideas to have her on more often in the future. So stand by for that. Uh, just to to wrap up, I think we have come very close to answering the questions that have come up. You know, Elka uh, called in and her voicemail was played on today's show. And so you know that the essence that I can pull from all of this is essentially that I never meant to imply that I, as an individual didn't need to improve my listening skills. I just felt like that was less of a universal lesson than the importance of communicating when you're the one. Pushing your advocacy on others, uh, and then Elkett's other question was about, uh, you know, about the guy who was actually against equality. In, in, I mean, he he phrased it in really interesting ways that made it sound like he was against uh, against equality. And she was curious as to why. I thought he sounded like a dick, and and it, it had nothing to do with the positions he was pushing. It was actually that he sort of went out of his way to insult. Potential allies. He he basically said that if you're gay and you want to get married, then you must have low self esteem. And so that's all it was. It was not what he was advocating, but how he went about it. And he was very alienating in that way. So that is it on this conversation. I think it will, I certainly hope it is the last we'll uh, hear from him for a while. And so I just want to move on and thank more donors who have donated to my climate ride. Uh, Bruce came in with the, the new high donation of $75 followed up uh, closely by uh, Carl, Gretchen, Karen, and Cindy. Thanks to all of you. Uh, you have brought me now to 12%. I think last show I was at 3%. I'm at 12% of my goal of $2,400. Please keep those donations coming in. The link to donate is in the show notes of this episode and contained right in the file itself. You could probably look look at your phone if you're listening to it on a device like that and click right through to the donation page. Every little bit helps and is very much appreciated. So that is it for today. Of course, everyone can support the show by becoming a member or telling everyone you know about it,
4: bought a picture that wasn't right. Pitch burning on a shining sheet. The only maker that you wanna meet. A dying man in a living room. Who shadow bases the floor. Who take you out in the open door? This is not my life. It's just a fun farewell to a friend. It's not what I'm like It's just a fun fact